Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for this day and our time together that we are able to freely pray on this Sunday morning. We continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Lord, we lift up our pastors and our staff here at Covenant for a hedge of their protection for them and their families as they serve us. We pray for the ministries here as we seek to continue to shepherd our covenant flock. Lord, we pray for our local, state, and national leaders that they would bend their knees and seek your wisdom as they govern. That, that justice and truth may actually be the forefront of all of their discussions. Lord, your word teaches us in Luke twelve forty-eight that to whom much is given, much more is expected. We're a blessed church and a blessed nation. We seek your guidance in how that you would have us serve you in a manner that pleases you and brings glory to your name. Lord, we lift up in our prayers for Gary Purdy, the RUF pastor at Birmingham Southern, and the loss of his wife, Marilyn. And Lord, on this Sanctified Sunday, we pray for our missions partner, Save Life Ministries, and all that they do. Lord, we lift up these prayers and those unspoken in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a joy to be here and to worship God and to hear his word sung and prayed and preached. <clears throat> I was talking to someone uh, just after Sunday school, and I mentioned to them that at the 8 o'clock service, I think I can speak for all the pastors when I say that at the 8 o'clock service, you will hear all that we want to say in a sermon. And at the 1030 service, you will hear all that we need to say in a sermon. Okay. So, um, if it just depends on what you need on a given week, but if you want to hear more, the eight o'clock might be the service for you. <clears throat> well, we are in Mark's gospel chapter nine, and there's been a turn in the gospel. And if you've been with us for the study through Mark, the past couple of weeks, you've recognized this and seen this transition. Because early on in Mark's gospel, the life and ministry of Jesus was relatively easy. Uh, there were, he, was, he was doing lots of various miracles, teaching about the kingdom up and around Galilee. But with Peter's confession in chapter 8 that Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, now we've made a turn. Jesus' face is now set on Jerusalem and on the way to the cross. And the the strife and the vitriol towards him is starting to grow as well. And so in our text, we're on the way to Jerusalem and also we're coming down off of this mountain high experience. At the center of our passage, you might think that this is a struggle that Jesus is about to encounter, a struggle with evil or a struggle with a demon. But really, what's at the heart of this passage, and I think what a lot of us, including myself, need to deal with, is actually a struggle with faith. So if that's you this morning, if you're like me, we need this word from the Lord. So let's go to his word, Mark 9, starting in verse 14, and then we'll pray. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you 
for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we come before you and we ask that you would give us eyes to see Jesus very clearly. Many of us are in desperate need of his mercy and grace. All of us are in need of him. Holy Spirit, will you stir our hearts and our affections? We pray this in his name. Amen. So you remember from last week that Jesus, with the three close disciples, Peter, James, and John, had gone up a mountain. And there they had seen something of Jesus' glory. They, their eyes had been kind of peeled and they were able to see what was spiritually true of this man, Jesus. And they tasted something of, of his glory there on the mountain. And it, Moses was there and Elijah was there. And we were reminded that this was very similar to what we had seen in the Old Testament as Moses ascends the mountain into the presence of Yahweh to taste something of his glory. And after this moment, the glory moment on the mountain, they've now descended back into normal day life. And it reminded me of something that Liz and I experienced several years ago. We went to a conference, this huge conference that MTW puts on every few years. It's the MTW Global Missions Conference. And so I think, this, they, I think they do it like every three years. And so we went over to Dallas and most of the MTW missionaries were there. They had all kinds of amazing speakers. Kevin DeYoung was there. Yeah, I mean, it was just a wild, wild conference. It was filled with awesomeness. You would be walking from breakfast and then you would go to this amazing talk and you would leave the room and you would be like, this is amazing. 
and you would be walking by someone you'd never known and they're standing there going, that was amazing. And you would come together and you'd jump up and down. It was this glorious, this glorious weekend of being with other people who care about God's mission. And you're hearing these amazing talks about God's mission and you're just, you're just stirred up. And I mean, I have a lot of energy already. So imagine me being stirred up. It was overwhelming. And I'll never forget the car ride back from that conference, sitting in a car for six hours and feeling rather deflated. And then a couple of days after the conference, when I'm sitting in class in seminary, listening to a long lecture and feeling like, what, why, why has all of that gone away? I'm back into the grind of hard things and hard relationships and just the mundane parts of life. Well, that's exactly what this text brings us to. The disciples had experienced this glorious moment and now they're coming back. They're descending from the mountain to the valley and they get back to the normal day-to-day life that still has darkness and evil and sin and things that overwhelm them. And it's here into this valley. I want us to walk through this passage and we'll catch a few things. There's a few things I think we need to grapple with as it relates to faith. And the first is this. I want us to see and maybe even experience the pain of faithlessness. The pain of faithlessness. This is in our first scene in verses 14 to 19. So here it is. Jesus is with his disciples and they come down from this mountain and they're coming back to the other disciples that they've left. And what do they find? They find them there and they're arguing. The disciples are arguing, the scribes who are the teachers of the law, who know the law inside and out and all of the right practices, they're arguing with the disciples. And then there's a whole crowd of people who are also arguing and they're just lobbing grenades and they're screaming and pointing. It's a very intense situation. Some of your family gatherings are like that. It's intense. Arguing is this word that just epitomizes the whole atmosphere. There's no grace involved. And why is it that they're arguing? Well, it's because there's two things that have met and there's a big clash. On one side, you have the disciples. And the disciples have now met something that they are unable to deal with. You see, a father had brought his boy who is apparently suffering from being possessed by a demon. He's possessed by this evil spirit that causes all kinds of issues in his life. And the disciples are unable to deal with it. So the disciples' inability is now being met by a crowd and scribes in particular with a growing vitriol, a growing hatred of Jesus. And it's into that kind of mix that you have this huge clash. The inability of the disciples in a seemingly impossible situation meeting the vitriol and hatred towards Jesus, Jesus, which leads Jesus as he walks up to this moment to look at this scene of people whom he dearly loves. And he cries out this this heart cry, this, this cry of anguish. And he says, oh, faithless generation, how long? Am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And it's in those words that Mark wants us in our minds to go back to the bigger story of of who God is and what he has done. And he takes us back to the book of Numbers and really the whole 
generation of God's people who are walking through the wilderness en route to the fulfillment of God's promises for them. And see, in Numbers 14, we read some of it in our, in our, earlier in our service. In Numbers 14, God's people are in the wilderness and they've sent spies. Moses has elected 12 spies to go into the land of promise. And what do they find? They find that it's better than what they've been told. It has everything, enormous grapes the size of a baseball, figs and dates. It's, it's plush. And then a few, 10 of the spies actually say, yeah, that's true, but it's, it's way worse than we thought because there's bad people there. And so here in this scene, in Numbers, you have God's people crying out and saying, we'd rather have just stayed in slavery. It would have been better for us to have died in Egypt or better yet to die in this wilderness. And Yahweh says, oh, faithless generation, perverse generation, how long will you not believe in me? And so the scenes are the same. And what's at the root of the scenes? The root of the scene is unbelief. God's people then and God's people in Mark and maybe even God's people today are racked with unbelief because we do not believe that God is as good as he has said he is. We do not believe that God can do what he said he will do. We do not believe that his promises are yes and amen for us. We don't believe that he can come through. So Jesus is standing there looking at this scene and he cries out. The disciples, the scribes, the father, the boy, even Jesus himself are feeling the effects, feeling the pain of faithlessness. And it's into that very moment that we see something amazing happen. This leads us to our second point, which is the power of faithfulness. The power of faithfulness. And this we see in the scene, this interaction between Jesus and the father and the boy who is possessed by this demon. In this scene, there's a bookend. And the bookend is the overwhelming power of the darkness of this evil spirit. You can see it in verse 20 and verse 26. Look, look at the text. This is what happened. The, the boy is brought to him. And when the spirit sees Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Many of you maybe have family or friends or know folks who have suffered from epilepsy. And in a way, this is an epileptic episode. But this is like to the 10th degree. I've seen someone in, undergo a, you know, an epileptic moment. And it is overwhelming. Their body just seizes up and they fall and they're shaking on the ground and their eyes are rolled back and, and you're standing there powerless. You, you can literally do nothing for them. Maybe some medically trained professionals could, can attend to them in a different way, but as I am, I'm utterly powerless. And that's what's happening here before Jesus. And then Jesus says, how long? And he, the father says, his whole life. From childhood, this has happened. And it's actually worse than this. Sometimes it will throw him into a fire or into water so as to completely destroy him. And at the end of the passage in verse 26, you see the same thing. Even as the spirit is leaving, he convulses the boy terribly. See, at the root of unbelief, the surrounding context is often an overwhelming sense of evil and sin. 
And that's exactly what's happening in this story. You see, the evil spirit is bent on destroying the imago Dei of this little boy. And what we're supposed to see in this moment is exactly what sin does to the human heart. You see, sin, rebelling against God, the the power of darkness in us and around us is bent on destroying the imago Dei of God's people and really of all humanity. It is bent on destroying what is good and right about being human. And you see this in, in who the boy is. Think about it. It says that he is deaf and mute and utterly helpless in his body. So he's deaf. He has been unable from childhood to hear the comforting words of his father or mother in these episodes. And he's, well, he's deaf and he's mute, which means he's unable to speak clearly his needs and his desires and the things that he wants to bring comfort. And often that's what sin does to us. It cages us in and it makes us deaf to where we can't hear God's good word, even coming from people close to us or from his own word when we study it ourselves. And it can make us mute where we cannot speak good things clearly. Sin is bent on destroying the Imago Dei. And here we have a picture of its reflection in this text, which... Jesus responds to beautifully. See, the father then, in the presence of Jesus, who's asked him these questions, he's standing there almost hopeless. Not completely, but almost. And he says, okay, Jesus, your disciples have been unable. This word, they don't have power. But if you have power, if you are able, will you have compassion on us and help us? They, they didn't have the power to deal with this overwhelming darkness. But if you have power, please be compassionate and help us. You see, moments like this show our real dependence and the real need that we have outside of ourselves. Everyone in this story has come to the moment where they finally realize they don't have it in them. And they need something from the outside. And how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds with a little humor, but I think it's serious humor. The the father says, if you have power, and Jesus says, if I have power, it's as if to say, you're not sure. Let me give you assurance. If I have power, actually all things are empowered by one who believes all things are possible for one who believes it's an amazing statement jesus is looking at the father who's in desperation who's overwhelmed by darkness and he says to him it's not that your faith can accomplish any and everything but when you have true faith then it says i'm not putting any limits on what god can do All things are possible for one who believes, says, God, I don't know what you will do, but I know what you can do. And I'm willing to wait. And I'm willing to rest. And I'm willing to hope. Because all things are possible for you, for one who believes. 
And then right here in the middle, verse 24, when you see bookends in the scripture, what's in the middle is often the, the point of the matter. And here it is. Immediately after hearing Jesus say these words, the father looks at him, at Jesus, and cries out to him and says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And now astute readers would say, that is a blatant contradiction. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot believe and unbelieve because they are diametrically opposed. They are utterly opposite. And you can't have the two and never the twain shall meet. But Jesus says that's exactly the point. That's the exact right cry of someone who is looking to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. In the front of your worship guide, there's a few quotes from Spurgeon and Calvin who are hitting at this very thing. And paraphrase, maybe I'm putting them all together, I don't know. But it says something like, all of us, even given the gift of faith, still have remnants of unbelief. And God is immensely merciful and gracious to our unbelief to rid us of it and to slowly but surely perfect our faith through life until we get glory to the glorious presence of Jesus when we're fully and finally perfected. Our sanctification is complete because we're with him and made like him. Jesus is able. He rebukes the unclean spirit and the unclean spirit comes out. And it leaves the boy looking like a corpse. Now, friends, I have to say this really fast. Sometimes following Jesus for many people doesn't start out bad and then get easier. Sometimes we think that that's kind of the the progress of faith. But the story of the gospel, and really the story of Mark's gospel, is the opposite. It starts out relatively easy and then gets harder. And why? Well, it's because we're more aware, we're more open to the spiritual reality that's in us and around us. So it actually doesn't become easier, it becomes more difficult to follow Jesus as we see what's really true. Now, don't be despairing. Just because it's more difficult doesn't mean it's not sweeter. That's the story that Mark is is portraying. That's the story of the gospel. Yes, following Jesus doesn't become easier, but it does become sweeter. When Liz and I were in Jackson, she she had an autoimmune illness, and we didn't really know all about it at the time. We know a lot more now. But it was recommended to us that we change our diet, radically change our diet. And so we started this autoimmune paleo something or another, cut all of the things out diet. And it was, you know, fruit was too sugary. Certain vegetables were too sugary. Could you imagine that? Vegetables being too sugary? It is true on this diet. And so we began this thing. And so we were eating lots of beets, which were actually too sugary, but we ate them anyways. Beets rutabagas, parsnips, rutabagas. Did I mention rutabagas? We ate them all the time for about 18 months. Probably the healthiest I've ever been. At the beginning, let me tell you what they taste like. They taste like the earth. They all taste like the ground. Let me tell you what they taste like 18 months later sweeter version of the earth. (laughs) The taste doesn't change. 
but it was somehow sweeter to my tongue. My taste buds started to change. It started to grab different profiles of what was actually there. And that's a small picture of what it's like in the Christian life. It, it doesn't necessarily get easier, but it gets sweeter to be with Jesus because you're more aware of him and his power and presence in the midst of your own incapacities to deal with what's around you. And that leads us to the last point. We've seen the pain of faithlessness and the power of faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus. And so lastly and quickly, I want us to see Jesus, the faithful object of our own faith. Jesus, the faithful object of our own faith. And there's two ways I want us to see this. And first is in the way the Father interacts with Jesus. See, the Father exhibits a growing sense of true faith. Notice in the beginning of the passage, this is in verse 17, he is the one from the crowd who answers Jesus. He's the one who steps out and he says, teacher, I brought my son to you. You see, intuitively he knew this was a problem that was so overwhelming. There's only one place to go and it was to Jesus. Teacher, I brought my son to you in hope. Your disciples had no power. They were incapable of doing it. They weren't able to deal with it. So I need you. And look at how he responds to Jesus's interaction in the middle of the text. If you, Jesus, have power, then you be compassionate and you help us. Help us. Help my boy. He starts to exhibit what true faith is. In his one statement, when he says, I believe, help my unbelief, he's moved from Jesus, help my son to Jesus, help my unbelief. Because that's what was standing in the way. And then secondly, I want us to see how the disciples interact. The disciples don't come out so good in this passage, but they're growing. Anybody? That's me. Don't don't always come out so good, but growing in grace. You see, here's what the problem with the disciples is in this passage. Quickly, they, they'd started to look at themselves as perfectly capable of dealing with all of the overwhelming parts of life and ministry. See, back in Mark 3 and Mark 6, Jesus gave them authority and power to command even demons to come out of people. And he sent them out to do it. And we read in Mark 6 that they had some success. They were going around and and pulling demons out of people and they come back to report it to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you were right. This is amazing. So imagine this moment, Jesus is up on the mountain and they're down there and they're like, all right, here's a boy with a demon. We can do this. We've been here before. We have the ability. And they started to have a misplaced confidence in themselves rather than in Jesus. And that's one of the root, that's one of the causes of unbelief is when we start to look away from the object of our faith and we start to look at the effects of our faith. And this passage is a call, it's an invitation to look again to the object of our faith, the only faithful one, the Lord Jesus. Because this is, this is who he is. You see, at the end of the interaction with the boy and his father, what happens? The boy looks like he's dead. So Jesus walks up to him and he takes him by the hand, just like he did with Jairus' daughter. 
and Peter's mother-in-law, and he, he takes him by the hand and he lifts him up. This word used in the whole Old Test in the New Testament to describe being being raised. And the passage says, and he arose. And another way of saying that is he resurrected. See, in the boy, we're meant to get a picture of what happens to us when we look to the true object of our faith. See, Jesus is the only faithful one who, is, who lived a perfectly faithful life to God the Father. He lived perfectly up to the cross. And his faith was perfected on the cross as he bore the weight of God's wrath for your and my sin and the sins of all of his people. He bore the weight of the darkness of evil that we started and created and multiplied. He bore it, releasing us from it, commanding it to go out and never to harm us again. It still remains, but its power is gone. Jesus, the object of our faith, takes us who were dead and he raises us to new life as he unites us to Christ in the power of the Spirit. This passage is an invitation for you who are grappling, for you who have weak faith. It says, don't look at yourselves. Stop resting in your power to deal with all the things that are hard in your life. In fact, God often gives you things that you cannot have control over and that you cannot handle so that you'll again look to Jesus who will sustain you in his grace and who will lift you up again. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us the gift of faith. And we praise you that even in our weakness, even in our desperate cries of I believe, help my unbelief, you meet us right there and you say that's exactly where I want you. Because right there you are sensing your need of me and your dependence upon me and I'm ready to meet you with all sustaining grace. Father, as we come to this table, nourish us and strengthen our feeble faith as we're on the way, waiting for the fulfillment of all of your promises to us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.